Welcome to the More to the Story podcast. I am so glad that you have come along. We have a special treat today. We have Bishop Scott Jones coming with us, and I am excited to share this conversation with you. But before I do that, I want to make sure you know that this podcast is sponsored by Wesley Biblical Seminary, where we are developing trusted leaders for faithful churches. And we do that through a variety of programs, from bachelors to masters to doctoral programs, and several lay initiatives that we'd love for you to be aware of. So you can find more out about WBS at wbs.edu. And secondly, we're thankful for WPO Development. They're a group that goes around and helps people with strategic planning, capital campaigns, feasibility studies, and they've done that successfully for more than 250 churches, schools, and organizations. And their CEO, Keith Waters, says that if you don't know where you're going, any path will get you there. And I know that that is true. So you can find out more about them at the link that's provided in the show notes. We'd love for you to connect with WPO. And finally, if you get on my mailing list, which is Andy at andymillerthe3rd.com, that's andymillerii.com, I will send you a free short teaching called Five Steps to Deeper Teaching and Preaching. And it's a 45-minute video lesson that I present and an eight-page PDF document that helps people walk through the inductive Bible study method with the aim of thinking creatively of how you present to the audiences you serve. So I'd love for you to get that. And you can find that at andymillerthe3rd.com by signing up for my email list. Well, now I am excited to welcome into the podcast, Bishop Scott Jones, who is one of the very first bishops in the Global Methodist Church. Bishop Jones, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Andy. I'm glad to be with you. Well, it is, it's exciting for us to be covering the various things that are happening with the emerging Global Methodist Church. But as I said, you're a bishop in the Global Methodist Church, but we're recording this in January, and it's not even been a month since you've been a bishop in the Global Methodist Church. So I'd love, love for people just to learn a little bit about your story, which is an interesting one. And, and I, I was going to say at the start, a courageous story as you have provided leadership in the United Methodist Church, but it didn't start there, did it? So tell us a little about yourself. Well, I'm happy to do that. I'm a fourth-generation Methodist preacher. Okay. I uh, was ordained in a deacon in the Kansas East Conference, ordained elder in the North Texas Conference of the United Methodist Church. I uh, served three appointments as a pastor, then joined the faculty of Perkins School of Theology, teaching Wesley Studies and Evangelism. Then in 2004, they elected me a bishop and sent me back to Kansas uh, where I served in the Kansas area, and then they gave me Nebraska, so it became the Great Plains area. Okay. Uh, then for the last six years, I was bishop of the Texas Annual Conference based in Houston. Um, retired from that work December 31st. The last few years in the Texas Annual Conference, I presided over their process of allowing churches that needed and wanted to disaffiliate to do so graciously. My uh, approach was to say that each church and each uh, clergy person needed to discern where they could best serve Christ. And so we had uh, 290 uh, churches out of 600 disaffiliate. About 250 of them joined the Global Methodist Church. I retired, spent nine days in retirement, and then 
applied to the uh, Global Methodist Church uh, to be an elder and a bishop, and they received me. Wow, that is a very tidy summary of a lot of years of ministry and work. So that is it. So you served as a pastor and then felt led to uh, serve as in the academy as a professor. Did some of those those experiences that you have kind of set you up for the way that you would eventually lead in the um, as a bishop in the United Methodist Church? Well, I think so. Uh, Charles Wesley wrote a hymn that included the line, let us unite these two so long disjoined knowledge and vital piety. Yeah. So that all the years I was a pastor, I was teaching at Perkins. Uh, and all the years I was on the faculty of Perkins, I was involved as a leader in my conference. So keeping one foot in the academy, one foot in the local church, struck me as a calling that... Uh, fit who I was as a person, but also maximize my contribution in both places. Um, part of the office of bishop is to be a teaching uh, leader of the church. Right. Uh, if you look back at Christian history, many of the great uh, scholars were also bishops. Uh, and so figuring out how to do that in the 21st century is an interesting uh, chore. I will admit that my scholarly work has diminished at okay. one point, I was uh, asked to be the editor of volumes five and six of the Wesley Works Project. Wow. Uh, the explanatory notes on the New Testament. But then I became a bishop and realized I just can't do the same quality of academic work that I used to do. Okay. And so um, they replaced me and that was the right call. Wow. Well, that, yeah. And, and those who know that series know it. That's like the that's like making it to the Super Bowl. I would say well, like to be to be asked to do that. T tell us about your scholarly work, just in a nutshell. I, I I'm most familiar with the edited version of your dissertation, uh, John Wesley's conception and use of scripture. But w was it mainly around uh, John Wesley studies or Methodist studies? Yes, I uh, also wrote a book on uh, uh, United Methodist doctrine with the subtitle "The Extreme Center." And then I wrote a book on evangelism that's a textbook for some seminaries and evangelism courses. Uh, so I've done that and then most recently written some books uh, that are more popular in mind, like uh, Staying at the Table about the unity of the church. That's kind of an interesting thing yeah, given what happened. Uh, and then some books on for small groups, uh, the Wesleyan Way, Scripture in the Wesleyan Way, uh, Asked, Faith Questions in a Skeptical Age. Wrote a couple of those with my son, Arthur, who's a pastor. Okay. Now, it's interesting. You, you kind of... Uh when you mentioned the title of the one about unity and even the idea of the extreme center of United Methodism being the extreme center, some people who maybe are on another side of uh, the, dis the distinction that's happening in Methodism as a whole might say, well, what about that unity now, right? Because some people would suggest, oh, those who are leaving are breaking their covenant. They're breaking not just their, not just their, their covenant, but their vows. Um, Talk to me about that and, and, and then the way that we, we think about unity in this time where we're having to, um, some people would say, necessarily break apart. Well, I believe in the unity of the church and dividing the church is a last resort for me. Mm -hmm. uh, I had hoped 
that the United Methodist Church would stay together, but there are requirements for unity. Unity can't be in name only. It's got to be in doctrine, spirit, and discipline. And my reason for leaving the United Methodist Church is that too many bishops, conferences, clergy have deliberately violated the discipline of the church. Mm -hmm. In other words, the unity that we had was not real unity. And therefore, finding a church that is going to be more committed to its discipline struck me as the best way to spend my time for the last years of my ministry. Um, it was a very painful decision. The splitting of the United Methodist Church broke my heart. Yeah. Um, I presided over that session of the annual conference when so many, about half the churches in the Texas annual conference left. And quite frankly, when the conference adjourned, I sat down on a chair and just sobbed. It was yeah. a very, very painful event for me because I did not sign up to preside over the right. disaffiliation of the church. Right. I wonder, like as somebody who studied Methodist history, and of course, like in the 19th century, there were all sorts of breaks within Methodism and branches and many of the denominations that we serve here at Wesley Biblical Seminary are part of that and denomination I'm a part of. I, I grew up in the Salvation Army um, was William Booth had served in the Methodist New Connection. So there have been breaks through, through the years, but sometimes all those are just missional emphases. But I'm, I'm curious with your service and your scholarship, did you see this coming? Did, did, you, did you think that this could happen or, or, or when did you realize that the break was inevitable? I saw something coming six years ago. Okay. Um, tried to forestall it, tried to keep it from happening, but eventually, certainly in January of 2020, when the protocol was proposed, uh, that was in fact the the sign that it was inevitable. Mm -hmm. And so you then, as a leader, my job as the United Methodist Bishop was to help the inevitable split go as smoothly and graciously as possible so that both expressions of Methodism could be as strong as possible on the other side. And quite frankly, thinking about unity, I look forward to a day when the Global Methodist Church and the United Methodist Church uh, have cordial and strong relationships uh, that are mutually respectful. Sure. It'll be a so it'll be a while before that happens. Too many bad things have been said, uh, and too many um, strong feelings are, will prevent that anytime soon. But I look forward to the day when that happens. Sure. I mean, there's a shared history and still like, I'm sure it's like some of the things that you did in your scholarly work, those things will be, continue. Like the pe people who stay in the Methodist church will still be colleagues who are studying similar things. But the, we are, the, the, the break does suggest something that is worth breaking over. And this is this is the challenge. And at Wesley Biblical Seminary, probably about the time this podcast comes out, we're hosting a conference that's, that's trying to deal with this question. Rather or not, God's gift of human sexuality represents Christian dogma, or if it is mere opinion. And, you know, we often use the distinction between opinion, doctrine, and dogma. And 
and we are bringing together a team of scholars to help us think through this. Right? Like, is there, is it a necessary requirement? And, and I think where it practically comes to me, where it works out in my life is when people will say, well, Andy, you just have to realize and just deal with the fact that faithful Christians disagree on this type of question. And that's a hard one for me to answer. Like, I imagine that that's something you've heard a lot. Um, how, how do you respond to that? Bishop, does it just faithful Christians just disagree here? Well, if sanctification is a strong emphasis of Methodism, a disagreement about sanctification at the heart of what it means to be a mature Christian um, is probably a bigger deal for Methodists than it is for some others. Mm. Um, and so especially in a hypersexualized culture like we have in America in the 21st century. Uh, disagreements about entire sanctification uh, loom large. Mm. And that's why this split does, in fact, make some sense. Now, there are other issues that have been identified. There are disagreements about Christology, about biblical interpretation, um, and while they don't rise to the level of official United Methodist doctrine, um, it's pretty clear that the United Methodist Church does not enforce its doctrinal standards with any regularity or consistency. And therefore, having a church that is more narrow in its tolerance of doctrinal diversity uh, is very appealing to me. Hmm. Now, you say there hasn't been like uh, accountability, so to speak, across, across the denomination. But I imagine you upheld that accountability uh, when you were serving as a bishop. Um, and, and I've heard that you have, but I'm curious, like, what was it like for you to be serving with other bishops when you get together with the other bishops and you knew they weren't? Um, this is the, like, how do those conversations go? You might not be able to let me in all the way to the inside, but I'm just curious because like you're you're taking that role seriously. You're taking the charism. I, I love like thinking of like that of Methodism seriously. And, like, and I, I suppose they would say they're taking it seriously as well. I need to be fair. But at the same time, if you're not going to uphold the shared covenant community, like the, the, the identity of the organization, then our discipline, that's where I'm looking for then what are you? I, so uh, let, let, let me into that conversation. What was it like for you dealing with these other bishops? There were no conversations. Hello. Each bishop was seen as uh, running his or her own area, and other bishops didn't interfere with how you did that. Huh. So that each bishop ran his or her own area their own way. And the lack of mutual accountability among the bishops to the council, to the college of bishops, uh, was part of the problem. Wow. It will, okay. So there, there is no, is there structurally any way within United Methodism for there to be accountability, or is it just something that pragmatically doesn't happen? Bishops are accountable to their jurisdictional conference and the jurisdictional episcopacy committee, and it just didn't happen there. Wow. So that's in part how we got here, <laughs> how we got to. Oh, this yeah. Is oh, that, yeah. There, that there wasn't um, when when uh, when a conference would go in a certain direction, 
theologically and decide that they weren't going to uphold the discipline, they would elect a leader who would then be in a position. Um, if a bit, if a preacher published heresy, which has happened, yeah, and the a complaint was filed over that publication, uh, and a bishop dismissed the complaint. Nothing ever happened to the bishop. Nobody, nobody, there, there was no mechanism for holding that bishop accountable for his or her failure to uh, hold those people accountable that way. So many in the, in the debate, it was often said, United Methodist doctrinal standards are not changing. That's true. It's the lack of enforcement of those doctrinal standards that um, you know, if a if a preacher published and preached Unitarianism, that Jesus was just a good man who happened to get a few things right, uh, then nobody else would come alongside and say that's not in accordance with our doctrinal standards. But the preacher, if the bishop was protecting him or her, uh, nothing would happen. So you bring up the doctrinal standards. I'm curious how that's going to be different in the Global Methodist Church. And then also the same thing, what you just addressed, like a, a bishop protecting a pastor, even the idea of a guaranteed appointment. Could you highlight those two things for me? So the doctrinal standards, I know these are big questions, doctrinal standards, and then um, the uh, guaranteed appointment. I think the uh, mechanisms for enforcing doctrinal standards in the Global Methodist Church are not yet clear. Okay. Uh, we're working on this. It will happen. I believe it will happen. I believe that we have a church that's more focused on fidelity to its doctrine. Uh, and yet, were somebody to violate those standards um, we'll just have to see how that works out over time. Uh, in terms of guaranteed appointment, uh, you know, there's a sense in which uh, people who are, uh, it, it is easier to exit somebody from global Methodist ministry than it is in the United Methodist Church. Sure. Uh, we don't want arbitrary bishops uh, and conferences uh, being abusive, and yet there's going to be more discipline than there used to be. Gotcha. Now, you were a student of Albert Outler, um, who, and, and he, he told me before he got on the call, he, he called you one of his uh, last students, uh, last interest in whom he, one of the last students in whom he took interest. And I'm, I'm one of the things that has often come up when we think about doctrinal standards in the United Methodist Church and across Wesleyan denominations. And one of the things about my podcast is connected to people in various denominations. And one of Albert Outler's unfortunate legacies finds its way into conversations regularly, and that's the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Um, I, my sense is that that's not a part of the 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 polity or the book of discipline or transition transitory book of discipline the same way it was in the old book of discipline at the United Methodist Church. Talk to me about the quadrilateral and how Albert Outler thought about it. Well, I believe Albert was misunderstood. 
Uh, Billy Abraham, uh, my close friend for decades, uh, and I disagreed about this uh, because I think the Wesleyan quadrilateral, if properly interpreted, has a lot of good things to say and that Albert was misunderstood by the church, partly because he didn't express himself in ways that uh, would have prevented misunderstanding. For example, he talked about doctrinal standards as landmark documents. He once told me that what he had in mind there were the buoys in the Mississippi River that guided the safe channel so that you wouldn't run aground and have a shipwreck. Hmm. Uh, and that you would navigate within those buoys in order to stay where you're supposed to be. Well, if the landmark documents are that way, uh, that's a, a proper function for doctrinal standards. On the other hand, people took landmarks to be the kind of thing that you saluted as you went past and went on to a different direction, totally ignoring them. Uh, that's the kind of misunderstanding that happens. I tend to believe that uh, experience and uh, reason and tradition uh, are, in fact, good tools for interpreting an authoritative scripture. Right. Uh, Albert did not want to get into uh, changing the doctrinal standards because that process is cumbersome and rewriting the articles of religion, for example, would have probably resulted in something worse than what we got. Wow. And so his vision was not to tamper with those doctrinal standards, but to um, uh, offer a document that would interpret them well. Uh, so that the 72 discipline had a statement that gave too much room, our theological task it was, yeah. gave too much room for uh, supplementing and supplanting the doctrinal standards. Uh, and Albert was disappointed about that. Then you have the commission that came along between 84 and 88 with Dick Heitzenrader as the primary author that once again restored a commitment to the primacy of scripture. Um, Ted Campbell and I, along with some others, worked hard at sort of re-envisioning the Wesleyan quadrilateral in ways that would respect the authority of Scripture, and yet recognize that all of us use reason and some portions of tradition and our own experiences to interpret Scripture well. Um, so I tend to be more sympathetic to Albert Outler on the quadrilateral, and in fact, uh, was one of the five authors of a book. Uh, Stephen Gunter was our main editor for that book uh, that tried to see the quadrilateral in a positive light. Right. I, th I think it was an article or uh, something that you wrote where you saw you, you highlighted one of the abuses of it, maybe, um, and it was a newspaper article where somebody said, well, I ran it through the Wesleyan quadrilateral and um, and the church's position uh, uh, loses three to three to one. It was that well, was that scripture, year? scripture, scripture loss. Three to one. Yeah, yes, sorry. I did say that because it had been said to me. Uh, and one of my students once said to me, he became a Methodist because you could believe anything you wanted to and drink beer. Uh, 
<laughs> you know, that's not my understanding of the doctrinal standards. And, uh, you know, as a bishop, I asked all of my ordinands, have you studied our doctrines? Do you believe they're in harmony with this Holy Scriptures? Will you preach and maintain them? Um, that's what I'm after. Yeah, I love that. That's really helpful. I appreciate you kind of providing more nuance to that and also with your own experience and your own writing in that work. Okay, I'm interested too. And um, we've talked about some of the challenges that we, we you've had to work through, you crying at the end of a conference and having to realize like, this is not what I felt I would be doing. But yet there still is some hope, I think, in this moment in Wesleyanism and with the emergence of the Global Methodist Church, at least I think so. Could you talk to me about what's exciting to you about this moment in Methodist history? I am excited about being part of the Global Methodist Church. This is traditional Methodism without the baggage. And yet I'm writing an Episcopal address for an event next, uh, well, it's gonna be done in two days. Uh, I'm gonna tell people that we've learned some bad habits over the last 50 years as United Methodists. Mm. And we've got to recommit to a missionally focused, disciplined organization. When I was bishop, half of my churches in the Texas Annual Conference had zero professions of faith. Wow. Um, that's just not a Methodist practice that ought to be uh, permitted. Uh, and so we've got to learn once again, what does it mean for a local church to be evangelistic, to be engaged in reaching people for Christ, to offer a pathway of discipleship that leads people from convenient grace through just, uh, con convincing grace and justifying grace onto entire sanctification. That's what we say we believe. Let's start practicing it. Mm. But that means that congregations that have been become a club for the benefit of their members need to face outward so that the Global Methodist Church is participating as a sponsor for a conference at the Woodlands called Beyond These Walls. Hmm. Uh, that's exactly what we've got to do. We've got to take the gospel beyond these walls and be involved in changing people's lives. Um, that's exciting to me. Amen. And I think this new denomination provides an opportunity for getting rid of our bad habits and uh, recommitting to faithful discipleship for Jesus in the 21st century. Amen. And there's also, I've heard, a movement towards church planning. <clears throat> as well, like going into places where there hasn't been a witness that would say, emphasize what you just talked about, going beyond these walls, evangelism. Uh, I, I know that the, the church is being is being born right now. So as a denomination, that this particular denomination, but it what what are some of the things that you hope will happen with the expansion in that way? Is there, are there locations, regions where you hope the Global Methodist Church will plant churches? I think we're open to looking for every opportunity that God has put on our hearts and puts in front of us. Uh, the crucial part is that planting a church requires a certain, not only theological commitment, but a certain mindset, almost an emotional intelligence that says, you, you feel called to engage people you don't know talk to them about Jesus and invite them to become part of a community of faith. Uh, so we need to identify church planters, and I'm excited about supporting such people, 
it's probably not something for a 68-year-old scholarly type to do. Uh, I wouldn't be a good church planter at this stage in my life, but I sure want to find people who are gifted in that way and then support them and give them uh, authority and permission to go forth and reach people for Christ. Yeah. Wonderful. That's exciting to me. I'm I'm interested to hear your response to some of the what some of the arguments that have come against the Global Methodist Church. Like maybe you've heard maybe there's some popular myths out there about what the Global Methodist Church is that are just flat out wrong. Are, are there are there some of those things you'd like to respond to, or some of the things that you see people characterizing the uh, Global Methodist Church in a way that just isn't true? If you hate LGBTQIA plus people, don't join the Global Methodist Church. We want to love everybody. Mm. We want to welcome everybody. At the same time, we're going to hold to some basic commitments that have been character that have characterized the United Methodist Church throughout its whole existence. Uh, and so we're going to hold to a traditional biblical understanding of marriage and human sexuality. Uh, that's the extreme center of holding two things in tension right. that other people see uh, as um, hard to hard to manage. Uh, I think the Global Methodist Church is not uh, going to be a white Southern entity. We right. have African American churches. We believe women can be in ministry. Uh, we're committed to diverse leadership. We are already looking at building partnerships with other Methodist bodies around the world, uh, not just in central conferences of the United Methodist Church, if they join us, but reaching out to some other Methodist bodies so that we can create the kind of denomination that will be attractive to them. This is going to be a leaner uh, denomination. Uh, we won't have the same overhead that the United Methodist Church developed since World War II, uh, and that's attractive to me as well. So uh, there needs to be a distinct effort by leaders, and I'm engaging that right now, of portraying the global Methodist Church as a missionally focused, grace-filled, loving community of faith aiming to reach people for Christ. Uh, that's my vision of it, and I hope to um, work hard on social media and in other venues to explain that's who we really are and not necessarily allow others to call us names and uh, portray us inaccurately. Right. Well, I'm excited to see what that will be. I mean, as you guys come together and continue to develop uh, the structures to make that happen. When you say, I'm curious, I know it might not be definite what it could be, less overhead. Is is there a kind of a goal for a number or percentage that will be the typical apportionments or tithe from a congregation? I know tithe isn't exactly the right word, but some denominations refer to it that way. Well, the national apportionment will be no more than one and a half percent of the operating income for our local church, okay. and currently is set at one percent. Okay. Uh, each provisional annual conference sets its own rate, but again, there are caps there, and so uh, some of them are being set at three percent, four percent, five percent, so that a local church's connectional funding will be no more than six and a half percent. 
that's a lower level than the United Methodist Church had developed over time. Um, so I think that, uh, and that means that more decision-making is pushed down to the local church so that how they're engaged in mission work, uh, we'll be naming trusted mission partners to work through, but um, there will not be the same level of top-down, you must be a part of this that um, some people have experienced in the past. Right. And, and that's been a concern for some people is though the nature of some of their their tithing, the money they give to their local church, then going to support things that don't that seem antithetical to the gospel um, that some people have felt that way for sure, that they don't want to continue to support it. So it's encouraging to think of that being left to <clears throat> the ability of local congregations to be able to decide how they'll be able to find um, mission fits for them. Um, it's it, it also one of the things that's coming too is that congregations will own their buildings, right? There will no longer be a trust clause. That's and correct. Uh, and we think that that gives an opportunity for local churches to feel more control over it. Uh, some conferences in the United Methodist Church have had required insurance programs uh, that you had to participate in for liability and fire. We think such insurance is important, but each local church ought to figure out how to do that for themselves. Yeah. I, the, these are all like these little fixes that I think are so important. Like what makes it an exciting time missionally, uh, theologically, but also administratively to be able to, uh, clean up some of these challenges that have existed for a long time. We're excited at Wesley biblical seminary to be able to, you know, serve, the Global Methodist Church, we're, we're like with other seminaries um, coming alongside and wanting to, we've applied. It, it seems like we'll be in a position to be able to serve the church, but it fits right in with who God's called us to be as Wesley Biblical Seminary. I'm glad to say that uh, those of you who are listening to this, Bishop Jones will be our commencement speaker for 2023. So we're looking forward to having you in May to be at our commencement. I'm looking forward to it as well and to getting better acquainted with Wesley Biblical Seminary as a trusted partner for the Global Methodist Church. Amen. Well, I always ask Bishop Jones at the end uh, if there's more to the story of my guest. So is there more to the story of Bishop Scott Jones than is typically told? You know, one of the uh, things that... Um, is not well known about me is that I'm 68 years old and yet uh, feeling the effects of aging. So here's an interesting story. I've been a snow skier since I was 15 years old. Okay. I fell two years ago, ended up with a blood clot in my upper right arm. Oh no! My right hand and my right wrist, there is no pulse. Oh my! However, I have plenty of blood flow to my right hand, so I'm in good health, but I don't go on black slopes anymore. I ski blues and greens with my grandchildren, and that's just the stage of life I'm experiencing. I still slalom on water skis, though. Oh, I just have to be careful not to fall. Now, where do you like to ski? Where's the location where you like to go? We own a cabin in northern Kansas on a uh, lake that's primarily for irrigation of cornfields. Uh, but in June and July of every year, it's got plenty of water for water skiing, and that's where we go to ski. 
Got it. How about snow skiing? Where do you go for that? Uh, Beaver Creek. My son, uh, oldest son, has a house up in the Beaver Creek area, and that's where we ski. Awesome. Well, thanks for taking time with us. It's such a blessing for us to connect with you and know of our prayers for the Global Methodist Church as it emerges and is forming in this key moment and not and what it means, of course, to the to Church Universal. Um, it's such a great moment. We appreciate your leadership in the church, first in the United Methodist Church, but now in the Global Methodist Church. Thank you, Andy. It's been a joy to be with you on this podcast.